Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in the space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com. Here's your host, Aviva Fink. Hi, my name is Aviva Fink, and I'm today's host for Altus Group's CRE Exchange Podcast. And today's episode, we're focusing in on the impact of housing affordability on commercial real estate. And I'm very fortunate to be joined by two industry experts, Peter Norman and Omar El-Torai. Before getting started, just here's a brief synopsis of what we'll be covering today. So housing affordability is a widespread issue in many parts of the world, particularly in areas with high demand and limited supply of housing. The impact of housing affordability extends beyond residential real estate and can negatively impact commercial real estate, as well as future commercial and residential development. When housing becomes less affordable, it can change employment patterns, limit economic growth, and affect the demand for rental properties, including commercial properties. As we open up today's conversation, we're going to get perspectives from both our Canadian and US experts on housing affordability, the effect on commercial real estate, and their predictions for how things are going to play out in the short to medium term. And with that, Peter, welcome to today's podcast. Do you mind giving our audience a brief overview of your background? So my name is Peter Norman, and I'm responsible for our national economic advisory practice, principally in Canada. And I have been part of Altus Group now as my 25th year, so certainly quite a long time, always in this role of the in the context of the economic pra- economics practice. I have an uh, economics degrees and I've been working in this industry for about 30 years. And I'm going to be speaking, I guess, mostly about the Canadian context and what we see beyond, but I think it's all going to feather into to the overall discussion. So really looking forward to it. Thanks, Aviva. Excellent. And Omar, passing it over to you. Welcome to the podcast. Do you mind giving our audience a little bit of information about your background? Certainly. Thank you for having me here today. Also looking forward to the conversation. I'm a director of research here at Altus Group. And really, my background has been in investment management. So I'm coming at this from and covering really the macro capital and market trends that affect commercial real estate predominantly in the U.S., All right. Fantastic. So maybe just to kick things off, Peter, starting with you, where are we currently in emerging post-pandemic landscape when it comes to housing affordability? So housing affordability, of course, is a pretty broad topic and can mean different things to different segments depending on how you look at it. But it can also be measured in different ways depending on what kinds of policies or segments you are looking at. So in very broad strokes, we think about affordability being First of all, related to the ability to access housing by the consumer. It's more of a consumer side concept. You can measure that in the case of ownership housing by looking at flow metrics, like what your housing payments would be on a mortgage on a typical house to your income. So that would be a reasonable way of measuring whether it's affordable or not. In the case of rental, of course, it could be done with the same way with your rents. But often data limitations also back us into other ways of measuring it. So we often see affordability measures being something like 
the price of a house to a full income, like that would be called the multiple, for example. And those data are easier to put together and are in many cases more comparable from one jurisdiction to another. So you see it. But of course, that's a bit of a flow in a stock being compared to each other. So it's not quite as comparable. But affordability in general has to do with the access to housing, the cost of access to housing. I'll just say as a kind of a final piece is we tend to measure these things relative to income. And that, of course, is important. And income is something that can be easily measured. But realistically, what we want to think about when we're thinking about affordability is where does housing sit in the pantheon of needs and goods that a household needs to spend on? So everybody needs to spend on their shelter. They also need to spend on food. They also need to spend on some other categories of goods and services. And the more expensive that homes are, the more expensive that rents become, of course, that crowds out or pushes out your ability to spend on some of those other things. So how important is housing relative to those other things is often what we're th- what we're talking about in this context. Very helpful. And Omar, over to you, just in terms of we've seen over the last three years. So there there was a lot of talk during, I guess, the COVID era, and I'm going to use that in with air quotes and say that maybe we're beyond that now, where there was the flight to the suburbs and everyone was moving out that changed some of the affordability factors for housing from a, an ownership standpoint. And now we're dealing with other factors that may be driving up the cost of housing, whether it's rental or owned. What some of the what are some of those factors and what are people facing when it comes to access to housing? Absolutely. So I think from right now is a pretty unique time in the sense that we are getting hit with a number of the trends that have started during the COVID time that you mentioned. And those being you have inflation being a big one. And this is factoring into, I mean, you see this actually in rents, but it costs more to operate a building. And if you look at from a rental building and multifamily, multifamily is one of the more expensive buildings to run in terms of the building owner has a lot of expenses that are related to not only utilities, the marketing, the personnel, there are a lot of costs there. It's a thinner margin business. And so when there is inflation, their expenses do go up and they need to offset those. But also, I would say another big impact that has constrained affordability has been the fact that we're moving from free or incredibly cheap money to money costs something again. And when money was free and people could move and people really work anywhere they wanted, that's where you did see huge surges from the whether it's from the coasts to the south or coasts in, but then this flight to the suburbs that brought a lot of, I guess, a lot of incomes willing to spend on a limited supply that really drove pricing up. And now that we're, not everything's reversing, but you can't borrow as much for as cheap, meaning that the individuals that may have been looking if they were just getting ready to buy, they actually may be stuck renting for longer because they don't either have the down payment, they can't find something that kind of fits their budget. But if they were at that point and if renting makes more sense, that contributes to and supporting rents continuing to go higher. So that was a long answer there, but hopefully that- No, I think that's a helpful framing. So really when it comes to just affordability and what options the consumer has on where they 
where they find dwelling, right? And whether it's a kind of rent versus buy, it comes down to supply and demand, right? And just like what's available and that's going to affect pricing. And so that also probably impacts, and Peter, I'll let you clarify this, the impact on commercial real estate as an asset class, right? Because they're still looking at supply and demand. It's less about where they're going to live, but it's where people are going to live. And that informs the net operating income or the revenues that they're able to, the profits they're able to get from managing that asset. So what are we seeing in terms of supply and demand? And does it differ by geography or by market? When you're thinking about all of your asset classes and you're thinking about a community and you're thinking about building out the sort of development, there's always going to be a kind of a need and a desire to build out developments in a mixed use kind of way where you're having housing and you're having other types of using your and your communities have all of those types of things. But where we have housing affordability issues, it can really affect that kind of choice of mix and how you're developing out your communities, how assets are going to perform across different types of asset classes. So in a market where housing affordability is starting to get more and more constrained. And let's say that it's an isolated market. Let's say it's not necessarily a global phenomena equally, but some markets, and we do have that right now. We have markets in the US that have a particularly constrained affordability right now, like San Francisco and New York, et cetera. And we have Toronto and Vancouver in Canada that has really strained affordability and then lesser so in other markets. And so if you have some markets where housing affordability is quite constrained, then what kind of an impact is that going to have on your ability to build out and maintain other types of assets? One thing is you have that kind of budgetary impact that I just talked about. The longer you go where households are spending more and more on housing, all of a sudden you have a shift away from, for instance, retail sales, and that's going to shift your need for retail and a bunch of other implications going and the performance of retail assets and a bunch of other performances as well. So if you own a bunch of retail assets in a market, you probably want that market to have relatively good housing affordability as well, so that it's a well-functioning community, so people are spending at local malls and shopping centers and so on and so forth, and that it's all working, not that it's not constrained. And then from both retail and also from an office perspective, economic development is a pretty important impact. Office sectors do well when you have strong economic development in an area. And I would put forward that economic development and housing affordability are very strongly linked because you have a market where affordability get, becomes too constrained. That's one you know where you're simply not going to have the inflow of the labor force that you need to build jobs and fill offices and create that kind of demand. So your supply and demand mix between housing and office and other things sometimes comes down as well to those kinds of outcomes from the affordability process. In a market right now, we have markets right now, major markets where the obvious solution to really constrained housing affordability would be, for instance, building more housing. That's a pretty obvious outcome. If only were that easy. And, and if only it were that easy, that's true. But that would be the kind of outcome that you're doing. But in many cases, building that new housing and building it quickly can mean being more flexible with some of your other assets, right? The office market is soft right now in, in many North American markets post-COVID because we've got a, a kind of a transcendental shift going on in terms of office demand. And we also have lots and lots of B and C class buildings that are ready to be converted into housing projects. 
And yet we still have a lot of jurisdictions. And in Canada, we've got laws against conversion, maybe laws against redeveloping office properties, as an example, which stand in the way of this kind of thing. So you've got this obvious opportunity to shift some assets into others and to positively affect the affordability issue through supply and demand. But there are policy constraints sometimes getting in the way of that sort of thing. So that anyway, a variety of impacts back and forth. Yeah, it's really amazing because you think about, or when I think about a specific asset class, I put my blinders on, I'm like, oh, but like, how is this asset class performing? What's the supply and demand here? How is it being priced? What are the impacts? What is impacting the pricing? But then to your point, the ramifications, there's only a limited amount of spend out there. So if you're spending on housing, then you're reducing your retail expenditures. And so what implication does that have on retail and so on and so forth? But Omar, coming back to you, something interesting you said toward the opening is that multifamily is one of the more expensive asset classes to maintain and manage. So thinking about that plus inflation and the need that, especially in markets where there's high demand and low supply, right? So we have this affordability problem. So we need more housing. What happens then? Multifamily is expensive. Cost of capital is expensive. So where does that leave the industry? Yeah, I think we're going to find out. So if you're looking at it from like a development standpoint, I think that it can become a pretty clear, it's math, right? Looking at what are your financing options, as well as inflation has really rocked construction in the sense that materials and labor, even though they've come down from some of the inflation rates that you were seeing maybe six to eight months ago, it's a bit tamer, but like these prices are still up. They're never in a deflation, right? They're never getting cheaper. The long-term trend is they're more expensive, but just at different paces. So I think if you're looking at whether you're building and bringing a new project online, that can be easy to judge or easier to judge because you either get the green light or you never get it started. Because right now, I think we're very much in an environment where costs, whether that's of building, of capital, but all those costs actually really do constrain whether or not something can get off the ground. Development also, you do have a, you do have the hurdle of, I'll call it the political hurdle in the sense that getting the right permits, there's a real time cost to that. And so if you're looking at a development project, I would say those are a lot of the headwinds and they add to a lot of uncertainty there. But in terms of if it's an existing building, I do think that is one of the reasons why if it's an existing building, you have tenants and it's fully operational. I think that's one of the reasons why you see like rents are really actually like a delayed inflation factor, right? Because they do keep going up and they reset only in the U.S. It's usually one, if not two years. And so it does take some time for these to reset, but you are still seeing positive inflation. Now, you are also starting to see way more concessions getting involved so that the actual like net effective rent growth seen across markets is coming down. But that's uh, another lever that the ultimately property owners pull as a trying to make sure that their top rent growth stays strong and they're still able to effectively attract tenants. Something does have to give, right? Yeah. Uh, either persists in this, if it's an ongoing inflationary environment, you should see those rents continue to price up. But another, like one of the big pieces of that is, right, the mar- the overall margin of multifamily is relatively thin when you're looking at like other property types and how, and because you can't, often you can't pass as much of those expenses onto, or really elsewhere onto right. the occupants. And so 
when overall prices, and I'm speaking about prices because it's all just broadly inflation trends in one direction, the property type will often keep adjusting. But maybe I'm overly cautious, but there is a concern that if you can't keep your rent growth, your expenses are largely still sticky in a, whether it's deflationary or just if you recently had your expenses priced up, but you can't get positive rent growth, you're, that's when you start to see your margins really collapse pretty dramatically. Those are a lot of right things that you've enumerated that indicate the challenges that realist, commercial real estate faces when it thinks about just performance for multifamily and some of the things that are the headwinds that may get in the way of easing some of the affordability pains being felt in various markets. And Peter, what do you see that's being done to help ease some of that affordability pain? Are there regulatory things in place? Are there, I guess, organizational or maybe even just some like really creative investor decisions that are being made to work around some of these challenges? I think when you look at government or organizational policy around affordability, housing affordability, it really ran, runs the gamut. It goes right from the good, the bad, to the ugly that you see out there. And I guess we would like to see a lot more of the good and a lot less of the, some of that other stuff. When I think about that gamut, right at the top of the list, let's, sorry, let me just take a step back and say, first of all, I think that it's important for any policy to differentiate what we mean by affordability between the idea about general market affordability. And most of this podcast, mm-hmm. we've been talking about that, this idea that for a typical family, middle class, upper class, whatever family they should that wants to locate in the market, they should be able to find housing that's appropriate to their income. Or that's a general affordability. There's right. also the side of the equation of deeply affordable units for families who are in need of deeply mm-hmm. affordable and that you have sufficient amount of that of deeply affordable units as well in your market in order to ensure from a social policy standpoint that you're that there's shelters provided. And so I think Policies need to be cognizant of both sides of those coins at the same time and address it. We like income support schemes for families that are in need because you can design them in different ways, but ways that provide shelter allowances to families that are in need that then allow them to participate in the open market and to be part of the supply and demand of housing on an equal footing. And those are pretty good policies. In terms of actual supply of additional housing, governments should be involved, should be directly involved in the provision of deeply affordable units, but should be doing so not at the expense of other housing or others shouldn't be in the, at the exclusion of other housing, but it should be they should be involved in bringing those kinds of policies forward. And I think a role that governments can play in terms of housing affordability across the spectrum, and this can even af- affect deeply affordable as well, is just planning for communities in a comprehensive way that provides a range and an adequate range and fix of housing for the expectations that you have. Now that seems like it's simple. Like that seems oh, yeah, that actually seems really complicated because it's not that way. For the last number of decades, planning jurisdictions, many in the US and many in Canada, major jurisdictions have had other objectives in terms of the range and mix of housing that's being provided. Some of those objectives are, for example, urging densification because it has environmental benefits or others to it. 
And yet we have a population that looks for a certain amount of population that looks for non-dense housing. And if you've got policies that have the wrong mix of housing between, say, apartment projects and single family, what the market is looking for, that's going to cause market imbalance and market imbalance is going to lead to affordability issues. So we like to see planning policies that are a lot more tied to what the future needs of the community actually are. Those would be really good and they would address affordability. When I talk about the gamut from good to bad to ugly, the things that are ineffective are things like in Canada right now, we're gripped by foreign buyer bans, like all that, the notion came into the public policy discussion a number of years ago that somehow it was foreign direct investment coming from other countries that was leading to a affordability issue, rather than the fact that a lot of this investment is actually creating supply, which it is. And a lot of those bans have gone in place and they are largely one of the issues that has actually exacerbated the affordability issues now because of the way that it's choked it up. And then I'll leave the worst to the last because it's something that's prevalent in a lot of U.S. markets is just coming into Canadian markets and is also really messing things up. And that's inclusionary zoning type policies. And now inclusionary zoning type policies as a small primer is it's like providing subsidized housing because it's a mandate to put a certain amount of deeply affordable units in in kind of any larger development project that's coming forward. But those subsidies are coming from the other units in the project, not from government. Mm -hmm. There, So you're putting up the price of market housing in order to subsidize a certain number of deeply affordable units. And predictably, what happens with that, for anybody who understands economics so well, is that a lot of those projects just so, don't so simply work. Or if they do work, they push up the price of market housing, and that exacerbates the problem. So I would like to see a lot more good planning. I would like to see, where possible, subsidies going directly to those in need, and then adequate supply of the right range and mix of housing. And I think that we're going to tackle a lot of these problems. And Omar, coming to you, how would you think about tackling these problems? I think Peter outlined a great vision for one way to, or I guess several ways to go about helping to solve some of the affordability crisis. Are there certain things that you think about? Because I'm sure you do. You dream about affordable housing at night and you're like, oh, if these things are things that we could address as a society, we would be able to alleviate some of the pain. Peter's the economist here. He speaks the truth. And I agree with everything he says there. I would add that the, I don't, I don't know if it's bad or ugly, but in the U.S. there's been a flurry of, I would say, rent control measures that have gone through. And I would say that's another one that is certainly nuanced in terms of it, good intentions, but not always great outcomes. But also in the U.S., I would say that there have been like a rather successful program has been, first of all, in the U.S., you have the agencies that are very active and Recently, they've had their scorecard updated. It must have been like November or December. And what happened is their regulator essentially tells them, this is the amount of money that we want you to put out towards these missions. And they effectively broaden the scope, which this is a good, this is actually a good thing. So, uh, this is going back to what Peter was talking about, right? We've got like broader affordability, yes. but then we have affordability for lower income families. Yes. And this is at least the... I don't want to say the slang, but the jargon in the U.S. is capital A versus lowercase a, right? Mm -hmm. Capital A is, means it's some sort of government program. It's going to be, it's going to qualify for X, say 30% or 50% of the units within this property, essentially priced to a certain kind of the HUD or HUD or, will put out numbers yeah. in it 
based on AMI and what, yeah. And so there's a lot that one, one, like a lot of numbers, a lot of thought that goes into this, but if it qualifies for that and it qualifies for the agency financing, that can be like capital A. Other programs that are very helpful in the U.S. is really LIHTC. So it's like LIHTC and Section 8. So LIHTC being an acronym for Low Income Housing Tax Credit. And that's the tax credit, right? It's lighter taxes to support the investment in this low income housing. The success of these programs and these structures, at least in the U.S., should point to the right direction of greater affordability can be achieved through, I'd say, these financial incentives. One area, though, that is a little bit that I do think could really address your question directly, there needs to be more really development financing. The issue really is supply, Peter pointed out. And while there are some programs that do support development, it really requires the project sponsors to jump through a lot of hoops and it can effectively extend timelines. They could be easier, right? Or overall affordable supply could hit the market faster. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask either of you to look in at your crystal ball and predict the medium or long-term outcomes of affordable housing and where we'll be in 6, 12, 18 months time, maybe five years time. I won't do that just given how volatile things have been for the last couple of months. But I would love to get each of your perspectives on resources or just areas of exploration that you would encourage our audience to go and pursue, given that this is I would say actually rapidly changing in that it's reacting to the market, to changing market dynamics. So where can they go for resources? What sort of data should they be looking at? What are ways for our audience to be as informed as possible and help them understand opportunities and risk as they think about multifamily and affordability? Peter, maybe starting with you. I guess the answer to that question could be as varied as what people's needs are and when they're going into this sort of thing. Omar has talked a lot about the access to financing and other types of issues. And there's, of course, will be a lot of resources around how to navigate that important channel. I think if you're just trying to keep tabs on the direction of movement, where things are going, what's going on, there there are resources on both sides of the border. The Royal Bank puts out an affordability index and monitors this on a quarterly basis. A lot of people watch that. The CMHC and on the north side of the border, HUD on the south side of the border, both have affordability indexes that people monitor. But I just, with a lot of that information, that a lot of them are better at pinpointing the movement of direction. Are things getting worse or better from the last time period? And I think that they're probably good in that. They tend to get out of whack over time in terms of a in terms of a kind of a cross section or whatever, like comparing one affordable spot to another. But anyway, nonetheless, there's lots of data that's available. And I'd say just keep watching Altus. We're also in the business of trying to monitor policy, trying to advise governments and the private sector about how best to navigate this space and how best to use that data and tools and services that we can provide to in order to maximize your ability to get housing built, if that's what you're trying to do, to get approvals put in place and other things. So always happy to be part of that conversation. Yeah, thank you, Peter. And I'm actually very glad that you brought up Altus because I think to your point, one of the challenges is there's a lot of data out there, but how do you synthesize that data, interpret the data and action the data? And so just specifically in terms of north of the border, I believe that the state of the market, the quarterly state of the market webinar in which you are one of the regular stars is a great place for our audience to go for additional insights and just timely perspectives on what's happening, what's unfolding and what to be prepared for next. 
And Omar, maybe before commenting on other resources that Altus has in its arsenal for our audience, I would love to get your perspective on materials that would be a good fit for our audience. Yeah. So I would say yeah, outside of Altus, similar to as Peter pointed out, the public resources, I would tack on, at least in the U.S., the census. A lot of this permitting data is great there, so you can see the pipeline. But then I'm always a huge fan of following public markets and the participants in the public markets. I think the easiest to, at least when it comes to just broad, now I'm talking like lowercase affordability, is following a number of the larger REITs and their commentary there. That should give direction around overall rents. I think it's important to, I'm a huge fan of anecdotal evidence because I think anecdotes are single points that then feed or roll up into like larger numbers. That I wonder if the economist that. on today's conversation <laughs> is just <Yeah. laughs> seizing over that. I live in New York. It's a lot of friends. I know a lot of renters. And when I hear that they're getting concessions after we're coming off of double digit rent, like year on year rent growth, I've heard it first from friends that were moving before I saw data and like media and outlets pick up on it. The good thing is Multifamily and just residential as a whole is by far the largest real estate or built space. And it's the one that matters the most for most politicians' constituents. Therefore, it does get a lot of attention. So I don't mean to say this backhandedly, but to find out more, just open your eyes. Pay attention to what's going <laughs> That's on. That's right. It's Yeah, no, I think that's a good point where it's, yes, data is important and analysis is important, but just looking at number of listings in a market, seeing how it compares to those estimate or where like prices are being cut or concessions are being made on rental properties, all of that does give signal to like where the market is headed and how supply and demand are playing with each other to drive prices up, down. Or in all kinds of weird directions. At this point in twenty in the twenty first century, I don't guess like which direction we're going. We're going in all directions concurrently. And with that, unfortunately, I think that is all the time we have for today. So just one last plug. I do know we mentioned the state of the market up in Canada. We do have a state in the market in the U.S. as well. You can find out more information on the Altus Group website. And we do also have regular insights from our industry experts available on our website as well. And you can always tune in here at our podcast to learn more. We look forward to bringing Peter and Omar back for future conversations. Thank you so much for your time today. And there will be links to all the resources mentioned in today's notes. Thanks again for listening and keep an eye out for the next episode. Have a great one. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.